Rock and roll. It's your daily dose of all things Gamecocks on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Here's J.C. Sherbert. It's the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. J.C. Sherbert here with you Tuesday, April the 6th. Glad to be with you today. Lots to talk about, as always, around Gamecock land. Uh, big baseball game tonight. Want to get to that right off the bat. South Carolina is playing North Carolina. Gamecocks and Tar Heels. It's a midweek game, so it's not, you know, super-duper crazy important, but um, – I think it's always important when you play North Carolina. Uh, the Gamecocks uh, won the last game. They trailed in the overall series pretty bad, 63-38-1. to It's kind of how it is with, uh, with uh, a lot of sports <laughs> with the Gamecocks and Tar Heels. You'd expect it, and I guess Ben's basketball, maybe women's basketball, you know, just because the Gamecocks and Tar Heels played – you know, for a long time, 40s and 50s and all that good stuff. But it's uh, 63-38-1 Tar Heels. Gamecocks, though, went on a playoff winning streak against them not too long ago. Of course, last time they played in the playoffs in the NCAA tournament, Gamecocks got beat two games to one. Chad Holbrook's first year in a Super Regional that lasted for a week, eight days. I remember uh, there were so many rainouts and things like that. John Whittle stayed in Chapel Hill, I think, for eight days covering it. Uh, and then a really tough loss in the game three there. Gamecocks looked like they had it, but did not. Um, and that was snapped a three-year stint in Omaha for the Gamecocks in Chad Holbrook's first season. So uh, North Carolina comes into the game. Uh, they lost two of three to Florida State this past weekend. Um, they uh, are pretty decent, not uh, not super-duper. <laughs> Uh, in my opinion, um, it's always going to be kind of a tough out when you play in Charlotte uh, in the middle of the week like this. But uh, they, you know, they're good. 14 and 12 overall, 9 and 9 in the ACC. Took two or three from Virginia earlier this year. Swept Clemson earlier this year. Uh, so common opponents. NC State got a hold of them pretty good uh, before the Florida State series. So 14 and 12 overall. And it's at Truist Field in Charlotte. I know the, there are a lot of great Gamecock fans uh, in the Charlotte area that want to get out and watch this one. Uh, Jack Mahoney is going to be starting for the Gamecocks. Uh, I believe he is a junior, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know, junior, something like that. Uh, 1.690 ERA, 1-0. He started one game this year. Uh, struck out 22 this season. Opponents are hitting 200, 214 against him, 214. <laughs> uh, reading some of this stuff is kind of crazy. But, uh, you know, and then the Tar Heels are coming with Max Alba, who struggled as one of their weekend starters, 5.97 ERA, 2-2. Two and two. Uh, But they say it's going to be kind of by committee, Scott Forbes, the coach of the Heels. But, you know, a good opportunity for the Gamecocks. And, and here's why. You know, there's some news yesterday uh, that makes these games, you know, for the next couple of weeks pretty paramount uh, for this team. Uh, apparently, the NCAA is going to go with what they call predetermined sites for the NCAA tournament this year, which means they're going to pick the sites for the regionals and super regionals based on merit in the middle of April. Um, in other words, how good you are then is going to determine – you know, with your bid and all that, just like they normally do. Uh, and then, hey, if you're not uh, – if you don't get to the Super Regionals but you're a host, that's – you're still hosting. In other words, Columbia could end up getting the Regional and the Super Regional. Uh, and if the Gamecocks get bounced out, then Super Regional still coming to Founders Park. Uh, and, and they're doing it because of COVID and – they have to have three weeks worth of protocol at the site and all that good stuff. So this is the last year they're going to be able to do that. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, as we move forward uh, with the vaccine numbers really skyrocketing lately, I think 4 million in the country alone on Saturday. Um, maybe by the time we get to Omaha, things will loosen up a little bit. You know, I'm pretty sure they're going to keep mask mandates 
uh, in place at certain places in certain states uh, for a while. But as far as crowds and things like that go, you know, maybe we could have a normal summer with College World Series and playoffs and stuff like that. Uh, did my heart some good, regardless of, you know, and I'm not getting political with this, uh, but it did. It was nice to see a full ballpark in Arlington, Texas, or at least 38,000 or so for the Rangers game the other day. Uh, just from a, 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 hey, sports is going to come back standpoint. You know, I, I don't really care what everybody thinks about is that dangerous or not. Uh, you're entitled to your opinion on that. Um, and I have some feelings about it too, you know, but, but just in terms of the, you know, sports coming back, uh, I thought that was, uh, that was good to see. Now, whether or not it was the smartest thing in the world, you can debate that on another show, but uh, that was, that did me some good. So I'm hopeful, you know, and colleges are going to be extra careful compared to the pros. But I'm hopeful maybe by Omaha, the vaccination rates are up enough to where they could say, all right, well, hey, look, there's there's been, you know, 60, 70 percent of the population's got the vaccine now. You know, the chances of it being a super spreader event are minimal, minimal. Those that elected not to get the vaccine, you know, hey, they're kind of on their own, in my opinion. Um, you know, you can't if somebody doesn't want to get it, that's their right uh, and all that. So I support that. That's great. Um, but you know, I don't think the world can stop just because some people don't want to go get the vaccine. I don't think you can, you can worry about those folks, uh, once we get there now, that's assuming it's, you know, available and all that. So looking down the road, I think the hope is that, that maybe we have a, a normal Omaha. I think that's probably not extremely likely because it's right down the road, but, uh, that's what I'm hoping just based on the numbers that I'm seeing with COVID. Uh, and all that's so the Gamecocks, North Carolina tonight, 7 p.m. First pitch SEC network uh, in Charlotte. Um, you know, hey, it's always big when you play North Carolina, in my opinion, uh, if you're the Gamecocks uh, in any sport. Uh, and I think that, you know, because you recruit against those guys, uh, they're right next door, used to be in the same conference, used to be a heck of a rivalry. So, uh, you know, you need to go beat them. Just like Georgia last weekend. I mean, it's been kind of a, an Achilles heel of the Gamecocks playing the Bulldogs in baseball for the last 10 years or so. I uh, hadn't won a series in a while and all that. But you, you always want to beat Georgia. You know, there, there's certain schools out there, if you're South Carolina, that, uh, you know, you get up for. <laughs> and Georgia and North Carolina are two of them. They're the, the two states that border the state of South Carolina. So, obviously – that's um, that's something that people you know want to pay attention to. The Gamecocks are nineteen and seven overall, six and three in the Southeastern Conference. I've seen their RPI as high as fourth. Um, saw some power rankings on twenty four seven Sports the other day. I didn't really agree with at all. Um, other than the fact that I think Vanderbilt's probably the number one team if you're ranking them in the league right now. I honestly don't know who's number two. Tennessee's off to a really good start, but they've avoided some of the better teams. We went through this yesterday. <laughs> Gamecocks at six and three gave Vandy their only loss, won the road series at Georgia and swept Florida, who's number five in the polls still, and and who's probably that's a really good team. So I don't know. You know, I think uh, maybe I think in these power rankings they were. The Gamecocks were like seventh. Hold on, I'm, I'm gonna get that. Pull this up. Robbie Weinstein of 24/7 Sports did this. Um, blah blah blah. And uh, you know, so Missouri was 14th. That's the Gamecocks opponent this weekend, by the way. Seventh. So I don't know. Behind Mississippi State, Florida, who they swept, Ole Miss. Tennessee has not faced any of the – he mentions they haven't faced top teams. They're third. Arkansas second. I mean, Arkansas probably deserves to be second. Uh, I don't know. I think the Gamecocks probably would should be in the top five. With any sort of college baseball SEC power rankings, just, just because of who they've played and who they've beaten. Uh, but, I, I mean, I don't want to sit there and gripe too much about it because – you know, you turn around and lose to North Carolina and you have a mediocre series against Missouri this weekend, and, and you know, it's going to hurt. 
because, like I said, moving forward, this next couple of months, because of the sites being predetermined this year with the NCAA, it's going to be important to be the very best you can be by the time those choices are made. Um, and it's kind of fortunate because, I mean, you, you look down the road, probably by the Arkansas series at home, that's the April 22nd through 24th, that's when they're probably going to start selecting. Um, and you see, you got Missouri and LSU that are combined four and 14 in the league, non conferences with North Carolina and Charleston Southern. So you get through those, and I mean, you could, you could run up a pretty impressive record. I'll say the Gamecocks get, and look, I'm not saying the Gamecocks are going to go sweep in Baton Rouge. I know they're one and eight right now, but you have to believe that's probably not going to last. <laughs> April 15th, by the way, on a Thursday night down in, at LSU, I think my friend Mike Morgan, co-host of the J.C. Morgan podcast, will be calling that for ESPNU. But, you know, you, you win six of those seven, get the two non-conferences. That means you're eight and one, they're 19 and seven. That's so your 27 and eight. Uh, and you're looking pretty doggone good in the conference too at, what, 12 and four, something like that. Uh, and I think that would be enough in this league this year uh, to make a strong push for not only a regional host, but a super regional host, given the way that they're doing it this year. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. So if you're a Gamecock baseball fan, you want them to host, you're fired up about it, and the next couple of weeks are very critical, even though the level of competition – it's not like playing Florida and Vandy back-to-back, and it certainly isn't like the Arkansas, Ole Miss, Mississippi State at Kentucky. Then I mean, I mean it's, it's brutal uh, to, to close out the season. But based on how things are going right now, um, nobody with a straight face would say Missouri, although Missouri did win two of three against A&M last week and played better, nobody would say Missouri and LSU or Murderer's Row like some of those other teams. And it starts with North Carolina tonight. So that's baseball your baseball roundup for today. Uh, good media uh, availability yesterday for football from defensive line coach Jimmy Lindsay, offensive line coach Greg Atkins. They got the two line coaches in there. Um, so first of all about Jimmy Lindsay, I want to explain this because this gets kind of lost sometimes with, um, you know, who's coaching what. And so I want to I be clear about this. Jimmy Lindsay uh, is coaching – the interior defensive linemen, so the defensive tackles. So he's got, you know, two guys. Th- those are his starters. Mike Peterson is coaching the ends and outside backers, the edge guys. So that's Mike Peterson uh, who's coaching out there again. So, you know, you can ask Jimmy Lindsay all you want about Jordan Birch and Jordan Strawn, and, which, by the way, I made a mistake on the podcast yesterday. I said Jordan Strawn was out. Uh, the guys that were there covering – just didn't see him and they finally saw him and had a picture of him. So yeah, he was out there. He wasn't, he wasn't on the sidelines, but uh, you know, so, so you ask him about Jordan Birch or Jordan Strawn or JJ Anikbare or something like that. He's not going to know. So, so that's, uh, that's what Jimmy Lindsay coaches. Um, I, I like him, you know, he's not a guy that, and I'll talk about Greg Atkins here in a minute. He's not a guy that you're going to sit there and listen to and run through a brick wall. He's very kind of deadpanish, just kind of stoic in a way. But the guy knows what he's doing. You know, he coached for Lovey Smith. He coached for Clayton White for years at Western Kentucky. He's got connections. Uh, I see his name and connections with recruits a lot. So, obviously, I think he's making some moves there. Uh, but I like I like kind of his matter-of-fact approach. Um and his honest opinions about things. Uh, and so he talked yesterday, and very refreshing to hear, because, you know, this group needs to be better. Um, and he mentioned it in the interview, and, and I agree. Fundamentally, last year, you know, these guys on the interior were not as good as maybe they could have been, okay? Uh, I don't believe that Zach Pickens had a bad year. I think he progressed some from his freshman year. But as Jimmy Lindsay said, and I agree with this, he's got to get some of the fundamentals down better, you know, fundamentally and, and young players sometimes, um, especially with the weirdness of the COVID year last year that, you know, that's going to be what leaves them first is their fundamentals. Um, and, you know, Tracy Rocker, I've said plenty of good things about him. I still think he's an excellent uh, line coach, but you know, you, you can't say, 
that he got these guys maximized with their fundamentals when you kind of look at them play. And uh, that happens sometimes, no matter how good of a coach you are. Sometimes the communication is just not there. And we've heard, you know, a lot of things about how Rocker communicated with his group and, and things of that nature. Um, so, so Lindsay said that, and I think that's encouraging. Uh, he had some encouraging things to say about Jakeem Green. Uh, called him a pleasant surprise. I think Green uh, is a guy that can really help this team this year and play a lot. He's just got to continue to progress. And, and like Coach Lindsay said yesterday, uh, if he could just get a little bit better uh, every day, by the time they play, he's going to be good to go. And, and we've all watched his film from junior college, and we've all scratched our head wondering why he wasn't more productive at Nebraska. Uh, but – you know, I also think this, I think that it's a different situation when you're getting a, a guy that, you know, is a highly ranked JUCO player and you're not counting on him to come in and start and, and play every snap. You're really counting on him for depth. And I think that's a different deal there. Um, Lindsay said he'd like to have a top six. And so this is where we're kind of Going to get into the analysis analysis portion of the uh, of the show. So, who are those top six? And I'm gonna I'm gonna do some speculating here based on information that I've heard and gleaned, uh, reading between the lines, all that. Uh, I think it's Zach Pickens, Jabari Ellis, uh, Jakeem Green, and then Tonka Hemingway or Rick Sandage, uh, and then the other one out of those two. And then Boogie Huntley in the top six. Uh, Devontae Davis is out there competing. They moved William Rogers from offensive line to give him a look at defensive tackle. Uh, this time, I think, uh, I don't know where MJ Webb is in all this. So I'm, I'm, MJ may be up in the top six uh, for right now. Maybe he's ahead of Boogie Huntley. But uh, that's kind of where I think it may, I guess, end up. Uh, at the end, everybody loves Jabari Ellis, and I, I I do too. I mean, he's a hard worker, good player. Uh, probably another guy that could have used better fundamentals last year. Uh, everybody knows how Zach Pickens' talent is. Uh, I think they need Rick Sandage to come on, but moving Tonka Hemingway inside, to me, that's you know, Sandage better look out with, with Jakeem Green continuing to get better and Tonka Hemingway. Right there, Sandage has to turn it on. Uh, and I know he got in a wreck this week, and that was unfortunate. Thank God he's okay. Uh, Rick is a great kid with a good family. Um, but I, I, I do think from a player standpoint, he's he's done what they call flashed. I hate using that word over and over because, it, look, with, with Gamecock football, there's been a lot of flashing the last few years, but not a lot of consistency. Uh, and so – I don't, I don't really like to, to use that term, but he has. I mean, you think about the Georgia game a couple of years ago, the Clemson game when he was a true freshman. Uh, he seems to kind of turn it on for some of those games, and then other times he he doesn't you know doesn't play a whole lot. But uh, you know, I, I think it's important, and, and I think he can be as good as he wants to be. Uh, at the end of the day, I, I think if Rick Sandage de- decided that he wanted to beat out Jakeem Green and Taka Hemingway and maybe even Jabari Ellis, he could. Because you can't coach 6'5", 315 long arms and the athleticism he has on the inside. Uh, and I don't know that the wreck is going to set him back a whole lot. Uh, his ankle injury was probably a bigger deal. Um, but And I've, I've heard some good things about him working extremely hard this offseason too. So it's going to be interesting to see those battles there kind of on the second line. Right now, if I had to project it, I'd say Pickens and Ellis are going to be your starters on the inside. Um, but that next wave of guys, I think, is completely up in the air. And I, and I think what's positive about this, folks, is you know they didn't really have folks behind the – I mean, they didn't have a whole lot of depth on the interior last year. Uh, and I think adding Green and moving Hemingway inside, uh, and then you have Sand, you know, Sandage, Huntley, Webb, those guys, I, I think that um, – I think that's a positive, more positive uh, heading into uh, to this season at that spot uh, rather than, you know, having to kind of wonder about who, who's going over there. I mean, I know they moved Will Rogers over there. I think that was more of a function of Will Rogers is a pretty good athlete, played some D-line in high school. You know, 
I don't know that he projected to play a whole lot given the young players on the interior on offense uh, that are kind of out to, you know, Trey Jones and Tyson Wanamaker and then Vinnie Murphy, who we're going to talk about later. Uh, those guys are all really good. And so moving Rodgers over, maybe that's an opportunity to sort of develop some young guys like, you know, he and Nick Barrett uh, and all that uh, as we sort of move forward. Uh, I think that's uh, that's probably why that happened. But, you know, I, I think you can probably be – somewhat more confident uh, about the D-line. Uh, keep in mind, too, T.J. Sanders as a true freshman comes in uh, during the summer for Marion. I think I think that guy's probably going to redshirt, but has a load of upside and athleticism. I mean, he's kind of how you draw them up. Uh, and then they're going to continue to sign guys. So I, I think at the end of the day, you know, this spot looks like it's in pretty good shape you know, for 2021, and then we'll see about, you know, moving forward. I, I think for the future of this position, it would be very helpful if uh, Taka Hemingway, Boogie Huntley, uh, Nick Barrett, T.J. Sanders uh, sort of got uh, the P label, and that's P for promising moving forward. Uh, I think that that would really be a good thing because you got to have defensive linemen. Uh, in the SEC and against the teams Carolina plays outside of the SEC. I mean, that's a – you play Clemson every year, you need a good defensive line. You play North Carolina every five years, you need a good D-line. You're going to go play Miami, Virginia Tech, all these teams they've scheduled, need a good D-line. You know, you play East Carolina or App State, that D-line can be a difference, a difference maker for you. So that was good. That was good. Jimmy Lindsay talking yesterday to the media – Really uh, refreshing and nice, I think, uh, Shane Beamer letting his assistant coaches talk because I, I know that we like to hear from them on the record, you know, to write articles and produce content and things like that. Uh, but but I also, you know, know that uh, you guys appreciate that out there. Uh, I can't count the number of times people were outraged that a Kurt Roper or Brian McClendon did not have to face questions from the media uh, under Will Muschamp. And I, and I think that was partly because, you know, Steve Spurrier would let everybody talk. You know, everybody could talk no matter what. And uh, I think that was kind of a, a dramatic change to go to a one-voice policy. Uh, and then you never know who was injured and who was up and who was down. And it just confused fans. Um, and I think that was part of the reason at the end Will Muschamp lost what support he did have because people were frustrated and going to ball games and then you, you have three guys that you had no idea were going to be out and then they're out. Uh, you know, Xavier Leggett last year, I feel so bad for because, I mean, everybody's beating him up saying, well, he can't play, he can't play, he can't play. Uh, and they didn't know he'd been hurt for six weeks. Mike Popo finally had to spill the beans on that. Um, and look, I don't think at the end of the day that Will Muschamp not disclosing injuries and things like that had anything to do with winning and losing. I think it has to do with kind of public relations and endearing yourself a little bit to your fans <laughs> and uh, taking a more honest approach. I mean, if he'd have won, nobody would have cared. Nick Saban does the same thing. And if Nick, Nick Saban wins a bunch of games and nobody gives a flying flip about the one-voice policy and all that at Alabama. But when you don't win, those things kind of stockpile because it's like, well, you sort of feel like the rug got pulled out from under you. And if I had to, if I had to describe the Muschamp era as far as the fans go, you guys, I would say it's the rug got kept getting pulled out from under you. You know, because the, the minute it looked like things were going well, something would happen, and something would happen, something would happen, um, and, and they'd lose or lose a game, not show up, woefully inconsistent, that type of thing, and, and that's. That's jarring, I think, when you're a college football fan. You just don't know what to expect out of your team, but most of the time it's not going to be good. <laughs> you know, there, there, there's the, the, the team toys with you. Uh, because, look, I, I, and I'll say this again, as far as talent goes and all that, Marcus Satterfield, the new offensive coordinator, actually said some positive things about the recruiting that had taken place on offense around South Carolina. And I, I do think – 
as everything sort of comes more into focus, I do think this is a much better situation Shane Beamer's walking into from a roster standpoint than Will Muschamp did. And probably better than what Steve Spurrier walked into when he took over for Holtz, uh, I would say. I, I just – you just look at it, there just aren't as many question marks. And, and there's some guys in the program now that can be really good players. Uh, and so I'm not saying they're loaded, and I'm not saying they're not concerns. Receiver is a concern. Defensive back is a big concern. Linebacker, to a certain extent, is a concern. But there's more to work with there than Will Muschamp had his first year. Uh, and, and so hats off to them for that. I mean, that's, that's a good thing. That's kind of what a lot of people talked about when Muschamp got there. It was, well, hey, if it doesn't work out, he's going to leave a lot of good players. And, you know, it seems like right now, uh, as it comes into focus, like I said, there are some spots where South Carolina looks really, really good. Um, it's not all across the board. It's not universal. But it looks really, really good. So that's uh, that's the thing. And, and like I said before, it, it, teams with absolutely no talent, you're not going to go beat Georgia even on a bad day for the dogs down there. Okay, uh, and that win was, you know, you watch it and how it unfolded. South Carolina's defensive line beat up Georgia's offensive line, and Georgia's offensive line was one of the most talented in the country. You know. Uh, and that was kind of the difference in that football game. And that and Jake Fromm kept throwing it to Izzy McQuamu. But Izzy McQuamu still had to make the, have the talent to make the play. Uh, you know, talented. if you're not that talented, you know, you're not going to beat Auburn last year. As you know, and I know Gus Malzahn got fired, but if you look at Auburn's season last year, they kind of, besides South Carolina, they beat the teams they were supposed to beat and lost to the teams they weren't supposed to beat. Period. It's a bottom line, <laughs> uh, except South Carolina and the Gamecocks uh, beat them pretty good. Uh, and, and so you're, you're not going to have the talent to get that done. And, and so I, I think there's a big difference between talent and raw talent and potential and upside and all the things that go into evaluations when you're talking about the whole totality of a roster uh, and, and actually winning and losing games. I think much more goes into that. Uh, than just town. And I'll bridge this to basketball real quick. You know, we watched Baylor last night play Gonzaga. Those of you that saw the game, Baylor won 86 to 70. It was never close. Uh, <laughs> watching that ball game, Baylor had better athletes and their athletes played the sport of basketball better than Gonzaga's uh, for the entire night. Um, and they don't have a single McDonald's all American on the roster. Now, I'll say this about basketball. Uh, it's, I think you do need talent and you do need players. I just don't think it's always signing McDonald's All-Americans. But if you look at South Carolina's Final Four team a couple of years ago, a few years back, seems like yesterday. By the way, they beat Baylor 70-50 to 50 in that Sweet 16 game. Um, and also, too, some people are out there going, well, in the last four years, Baylor did this with their program and South Carolina did this. Baylor's been at this for 17 years. Scott Drew's been there for 17 years. Uh, so they've been building toward this. But, you know, yeah, they found talent somehow. Uh, wasn't a lot of other fireworks when some, most of these guys signed, but they're, they're pretty good. And if you look at the Gamecocks team that went to the Final Four, you start thinking about it. And you're like, well, my goodness, they have, you know, Cinderius Thornwell played in the NBA, P.J. Dozier, NBA, Chris Silva, NBA. Those are three three of the five starters in the National Basketball Association. Then the other two starters were Dwayne Notice, who was one of the best home ball defenders in college basketball and also is playing pro ball. Uh, and then Mike Kotsar, who's tearing it up, to say the least, <laughs> in Europe right now playing basketball, and he was just a freshman. So that team did have talent. I mean, that, that team did have, you know, Chris Silva actually was a highly rated recruit. Um, and obviously Dozier and Thornwell were as well. And then Coatsar kind of came out of nowhere. Nota sort of came out of nowhere. And you can blend it together like that. Um, and, and so we'll see what happens with Frank Martin moving forward with the recruiting and all that. But I think too often the tendency is to look at somebody that committed and go, oh, well, they weren't really highly regarded, so they're probably going to suck. And, and look, there there have been some players that Frank signed that, you know, have not worked out very well. 
I mean, that's the, that's the honest to God truth with that. But you know, that, that team that went to the final four lost six players off the 25 win team the season before, you know, he just had that group and they came together at the right time and, you know, played really good basketball. So uh, yeah, I, I think in college basketball, we're seeing as we look at who's actually playing for the championships and who's going to the final fours and stuff like that, we're seeing that it's not necessarily the Kentuckys of the world all the time or the Dukes of the world all the time uh, in this sport. It hasn't been that way for a while. Even that North Carolina team that won it all in 2017 when the Gamecocks went, that, that team did not have a bunch of stud lottery pick guys. Just a lot of good basketball players that gelled at the right time. And I think that's the key for the tournament. And we continue to see that season after season after season. doesn't mean you don't want elite athletes. And it doesn't mean that, you know, the recruiting at South Carolina does not need to improve. Uh, but I'll get back to this. Uh, if recruiting was such a bad deal, you know, th- then why are we sitting here talking about moving on from a coach? Fundamentally, not because he doesn't have any players. Fundamentally, because – He's lost to teams that his teams are demonstratively better than. Because we wouldn't be having this conversation if you beat Illinois State, if you beat Stony Brook, if you beat Stetson, if you beat Wyoming, you beat Vandy on the road at the end of last year. Nobody's even having this conversation. You know, so that that's what doesn't make sense to me in terms of the, you know, Frank Martin can't recruit or get talent or whatever because the problem has not necessarily been that these guys just aren't any good. I mean, they can go to toe-to-toe with Alabama even this year. Um, beat Kentucky, beat uh, Virginia. You know, they, they, they've they beaten really good teams. It's that they lose games that kind of just make your head spin around and fall off. <laughs> That's the issue, folks, because – and those those games, unfortunately, negatively affected the outcome of the seasons. You know, instead of sitting on – two NITs and the NCAA, and then you have tank this year, you're sitting on no postseason since the final four. Uh, and it's because of those games. Go back and look it up. So, you know, we'll see what happens there. And look, and I'm not saying that it wouldn't be nice to have players the caliber of Thornwell and Dozier and Silva back in the program, circling back in. I mean, it's not saying that that wouldn't be a good thing. Um because I don't know that any of these guys right now or right now are at that level. But, you know, heck, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, in, in college basketball, I think there's there's more than one way to get it done. Uh, and, and I think that's Frank Martin's challenge between now and next season is how are you going to get it done? Uh, whether that's guys coming back unexpectedly, whether that's transfer portal guys, uh, whether that's, uh, you know, the freshman hitting better that's the challenge uh we do expect something about the contract to come through uh here pretty soon uh in the next couple of days i uh john whittle reported the other day that right or wrong they didn't want to take away from the women's team and put any news on or attention to the men's program during that time that's fine and dandy with me you know i i um i sort of believe you know that's you know, in, in one in some ways I don't mind because I, I think that you know the women deserve the attention. Uh they're one of the best programs in the country, went to the final four, played exciting basketball this year. Uh in another way, I think it's you know, when you look at big picture and kind of the recent history around here, it's it's a little bit telling. I mean, I, I don't you know, I, I think that they the women's program does get a lot of attention, and, and quite frankly. Maybe not here and on the big spur and places like that, because we have to kind of program our sites and our podcast to our audience. Okay. We, 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 we're an audience driven medium. (laughs) We want to talk about and write about the things you guys care about. And the numbers don't lie. I mean, we don't get the, the listeners or the, the readers for women's basketball that you do for other sports. But, you know, I think in general, the women's program at South Carolina gets a ton of attention. And I think it's, that's why it's one of the best programs in the country. There's no question about it. Um, 
And so I don't know, right or wrong, that's the decision they made. Uh, I think a lot of fans would have liked to have seen some sort of resolution uh, quicker, but uh, it's coming, it's coming. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see sort of how things go uh, from here. Uh, I, I do know that, you know, a lot of people like uh, this group. Uh, you have two national top 150 players in Devin Carter and Jacoby Wright. Uh, you got a Taquan Woodley and Carlos Williams, who are also pretty highly thought of. They're just bigger, more physical, athletic forwards. Um, so, so we'll see. You know, we'll see how they do. And then, of course, uh, the transfer Chico Carter is coming in. There's some more transfers that are sort of on the horizon for the Gamecocks. And we got to figure out who's leaving and all that good stuff. So we'll see sort of what happens with basketball. So I sidetracked there. Uh, back to football. I uh, wanted to mention this. Drew Svobata, the Memphis special teams coach who replaced uh, Pete Limbo at Memphis. He's at Rice last year. He took the job at Alabama that Jay Graham vacated uh, as their special teams and tight ends coach at Alabama. So, you know, those of you that were like freaking out about resume with all these assistant coaches and stuff, oh, they've never been anywhere, blah, blah, blah. So here's a guy that was at Rice and was at Memphis for two months, and Nick Saban just handed his special teams over to him. <laughs> so sometimes it's not where you've been that, that's necessarily all that important when it comes to, to coaching. It's who you are, uh, and, and that's kind of the case. I mean, you, you think back to the the uh, Spurrier hires that really worked out, you know, Jay Graham, I think came from Miami of Ohio. GA Mangus came from middle Tennessee. Um, Lorenzo Ward was at Arkansas for a year before he came. G Punter, I think was at Georgia tech or maybe Florida international, something like that. Uh, Sean Elliott, Appalachian state, Eric Wolford, Illinois. Uh, it wasn't that they had this grand, these grand resumes walking into the door. I mean, that just wasn't the case. Um, and so we'll see. We'll see kind of what happens uh, moving forward. But I did think that was interesting that, you know, a lot of a lot of flack about the resumes that, that, that Shane Beamer ended up picking. A lot of flack about that. And then – and because I, and I even told some of you before Shane was even hired, I was like – don't don't expect a bunch of names. Expect good coaches, and I think that's what they've put together in Columbia. You know, you, I'm not predicting miracles or anything like that, but I like the staff a lot, and I think you know when you look, you see Nick Saban hired the guy from Rice to coach his special teams. You know, you 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 you're kind of thinking, well, you know, coaches can evaluate coaches. You know, you know, and Shane Beamer when he was at South Carolina and really. When he's at Virginia Tech too, and, and other places, he's he's good. He's good at figuring out who could get it done. Uh, you know, believe me, I think. Uh, you know, I've said it before. He was invaluable, an invaluable sounding board to Coach Spurrier when Spurrier put together his best staff, probably the best staff in school history. Uh, and so that means something too, right there. So Greg Atkins, one of his hires, uh, and Atkins has SEC experience at Tennessee, but came from Marshall. Uh, had a really good offensive line there. Inherits a lot. So he talks – and look, this guy is extremely enthusiastic. I enjoy hearing him talk because uh, he's he's kind of straight to the point, but you can kind of tell he's got a lot of enthusiasm. He's fired up, that type of thing. Uh, talked about how, you know, and some of you are going to cringe about the interchanging offensive line, learning different positions. Uh, that's just kind of something that happens on the offensive line. And, and it doesn't matter who the coach is. You're going to do that. And through the years, if you kind of look at the reality of it, there's been guys that have slid out and gone from right tackle to left tackle, that kind of thing. It's always good to cross train. So he's cross training people. Um, did mention Vinnie Murphy, who I did not mention when I was talking about the starting offensive line yesterday, you know, Murphy's a guy I've heard great things about for a long, long time, uh, working at center and guard. He's from St. Thomas Aquinas. I think this is his third year, maybe his fourth year, third year. The COVID year kind of trips me up sometimes because they have that year, but, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but Murphy's tough. He wants to play. He loves football. 
that kind of thing. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all to see him, you know, make a push. Uh, those interior spots, you know, I know Jalen Nichols worked there yesterday. I mean, that's, that's, that's some stiff competition on the inside, uh, I think, because you still got Jordan Rhodes out there that, you know, started a bunch of games. I mean, you've got some big athletic kids, but Vinnie Murphy, uh, that could be a guy, even at center, you know, Eric Douglas, I think is, a, he's probably technically a junior because of COVID, but he could leave after this year. You know, maybe he's the, maybe Vinny's the backup center, center of the future. I don't know, but it was refreshing to hear him talk about that and talk about, you know, the offensive line right now is kind of swimming. They have to learn a new system. Uh, the system is going to be different, but I do think they have a bunch of guys that are good at learning and picking up as Greg Atkins mentioned yesterday uh, you know, you think back to last year, uh, the Ole Miss game, which was Carolina's best offensive game of the season. And I, and I know, look, folks, I, I understand. I'm not blind. I know the Ole Miss defense was not very good last season. But they put in all that stuff, the, the blocking schemes and stuff like that with, with the under center stuff, a lot of that the week of. And the line picked it up. Wolford did a great job of getting them ready. The line picked it up great. Because Kevin Harris had holes the size of – you could drive a truck through in that game. I mean, he just kept going and going and going. You couldn't stop him. So, And it wasn't just him. You know, he, he wasn't like shaking a tackle of the line of scrimmage. He had holes. Uh, and so that showed me at that point that this group is an adaptable group. I mean, Dylan Wanham turned 21 years old yesterday. I mean, he's been around a while. Obviously, he was a freshman All-American up and down with sort of some injuries and stuff. Jazz turning time is a 6'7", 340. I mean, obviously you can't coach that, uh, but uh, there's a lot of guys working at different positions. Uh, I thought Greg Atkins was, uh, was kind of a breath of fresh air. I think you always want your line coach to kind of be a little dynamic personality-wise, whether he's like the stoic type or, or whether he's like, you know, the intense type like Eric Wolford was or whether he's kind of the demonstrative type like Sean Elliott and Greg Atkins. Because I think Elliott and Atkins' person – I'm just talking personalities here. I think they're pretty similar in terms of their approach and, and all that good stuff. So, uh, I think that's what you want. But thought that uh, thought that was a good interview with a lot of encouraging things. Anytime you hear about a guy like Murphy that's stepping up, you, you, you're pleased with that. And, you know, because that's, that's yet another guy that we hadn't really penciled into the too deep or anything. This could end up being good. Um, all right, so back to basketball. And, and look, North Carolina hires Hubert Davis. Uh, those of you that are convinced that Ray Tanner promoted Chad Holbrook back in the day just because he's a terrible athletic director or whatever, here you go. Great programs do this. Now, should there be sort of a, a discussion as to why? And if it actually works, yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. There should be a discussion as to why programs do this and, and does it actually work? Because I'll give you some examples where it happened, uh, starting with Holbrook. Um, Holbrook, South Carolina baseball. Uh, Smoke Laval, LSU baseball. Bill Guthridge and Matt Doherty, UNC. Now, Bill Guthridge, I think, went to two Final Fours in three years. But he was like an eight seed when he did it. Um, and so there you go. Uh, you know, Alabama football, they had Ray Perkins, who was a former assistant coming back from the NFL. That didn't work out. and They were in the wilderness for a while. Um, you know, so Steve Spurrier at Florida, they had Ron Zook, who was a former assistant. Steve Spurrier. That did not work out very well, did it? You know, Bobby Bowden handing it to Jimbo Fisher, and Jimbo was not a longtime assistant. That's the while that ultimately did not work out, they did win a national championship. So, so there you go. There's one where the assistant got the job. Chip Kelly taking over from Mike Pilati at Oregon. That worked out. Uh, I don't know if you're telling me of any of the former assistants that have replaced Pete Carroll, Kiffin, Sark, Clay Helton, who was an assistant for Kiffin, not Carroll. I don't know if we can say those have worked out at Southern Cal or not. There's been some good moments. There's been some issues. Uh, so you look around and it's like, you know, a lot of times, you know, you, you don't have 
the uh, the success when you just promote from within. But it's very, very common. It's very, very common. Now, some schools that haven't gone that direction, uh, you know, Miami, when Jimmy Johnson left to go to the Dallas Cowboys, went and hired best coach they could in Dennis Erickson. And they kept right on rolling. <laughs> so, uh, you know, whereas, you know, at Oklahoma, when Barry Switzer left, Gary Gibbs took the job and didn't do much with it. They weren't good again until Bob Stoops. You know, Mac Brown leaves, Charlie Strong comes in at Texas. Did not work out. Tom Herman did not work out. Now they're on Sark. Uh, so sometimes that does not work out either. Will Muschamp replaced Steve Spurrier. That did not work out at South Carolina. We can say that for – a fact. Um, uh, Lane Kiffin took the Tennessee job from Philip Fulmer. I tend to think that would have worked out, but he was only there a year, so obviously it didn't. And then you go Dooley and Butch Jones and Jeremy Pruitt, and it, it's just been a mess since. So replacing the legendary coaches, uh, you know, I mean, and, and you can go back to Oregon and also look at when Chip Kelly left, Mark Helfrich took the job. He did play for a national championship. Then he bottoms out at four and eight and is fired. So did that work out or not? I don't know. That's probably kind of like the Jimbo thing where some great moments and then it bottoms out, so you leave. So I, I don't know. You know, that, that's just one of those things. But Hubert Davis got that job. Um, I, I, I like Hubert Davis. I think, you know, just listening to him on TV all those years and uh, as a player, he was a really good shooter and stuff. Um, it's a historic hire, obviously, first African-American coach in the history of the program. Um, but we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens. But, uh, I kind of thought it was interesting that the, the criticisms, uh, on the message board and elsewhere, when, when they promoted from within, you know, trying to kind of base it on, well, you just never do that. That's just, you know, because of Tanner and Holbrook. Well, actually that it's, it's common. It's very common. I do think it's worth a conversation though, to see if you look around the country, the guy that follows the guy, when the guy is part of that staff or has a connection to that staff, and nine times out of 10, it does not work. It does not work. You're almost better off. Like if they'd have brought Shane Beamer back to replace Spurrier, I mean, I tend to think Shane would have done a pretty good job, but statistically, chances are that's not going to work out. Uh, and so it's very interesting, these dynamics. And then, of course, I get a – we do have one mailbag – tweet today from Ray Finkel, uh, who's a big anti-Frank guy. Uh, UNC appears on the verge of hiring Hubert Davis. For any schools that would like to make a run at hiring West Miller, Cough, South Carolina, right now would be the ideal time to try. Of course, that would require South Carolina to actually address its head coaching fiasco. Well, I don't think there's a fiasco, Ray. If you've been listening to it, he's probably going to sign, you know, sign an extension and come back. So, there's no fiasco. I wish they would, you know, announce it so everybody can kind of move on because you keep hearing different things. But um, and look, I, I think Wes Miller's done a great job at UNC Greensboro. It took him a while. Uh, a lot. There, there's been some coaches that have coached at UNC Greensboro that have moved on to good things. That's it's not a terrible job. Uh, I, I, a lot of respect for him, obviously. But is he the, a long-term answer at South Carolina? I, I, I just don't know. I don't know that any of these guys are. You know, to be frank, I, I like I like them. I like a lot of these coaches. But <laughs> are, are they going to be the long-term answer? And I don't think you can guarantee that at a job like South Carolina in basketball. Just don't uh, just don't think that. So. That's interesting. Again, if you want to get it on the mailbag, inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com or tweet to at the Big Spur Pod. Please also follow that Twitter account um, at the Big Spur Pod. Follow uh, the Instagram account at inside the Gamecocks. Got some good stuff there uh, and, and all that good stuff. So, you know, it's, uh, it's just one of those things. You know, get us, uh, get us the mailbag questions. We'll read it here. All right, that's all the time we have for today. Be a reminder, Gamecock Baseball tonight. I'm getting the time right, 7 p.m. Eastern. SEC Network, so I don't think you have to do the SEC Network Plus thing. Um, Gamecocks and Tar Heels, big game. They're all big for the next few months.
Uh, and after the news yesterday, like I explained about the, the deal with the, um, the super regionals and regional host being predetermined based on merit to a certain point. Now, look, I'll be honest. I'm not saying I agree with that. And that, that, that that's the best way to do it. To me, it's almost more fair to say, all right, every, everything's going to be played at a neutral site this year. So everybody can, but you know, nobody's going to have home field advantage. Uh, to me, that would be a little bit more fair than to say, all right, we're going to judge you based on what you've done for, you know, three fourths of the season. That doesn't make any sense. But honestly, when it comes to baseball, I don't expect the NCAA to make, to do anything that, you know, those of us that love the sport really enjoy. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about an organization that said you couldn't hire a third coach a few years back, you know, so, uh, yeah, then the poor guys are on 11.7 scholarships. They, they, you know, they're basically the epitome of amateur athletes and, you know, like everybody likes to love up and talk about. And then, you know, they do things like, oh, you know, for years after 9-11, and, it, it, you know, they would send teams to regionals based on travel, and they use 9-11 as an excuse. And they would load like the poor West Coast. They would just load those regionals up, and, you know. So then you'd have two, you know, one team make it out from that part of the country, and that sucked. But they don't care. I mean, that, you know, it's it's uh, it's one of those things where the, the 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 next time the NCAA makes a rational, fair decision about college baseball, I think it'd be the last. I, I honestly think. When you talk about people that don't care about a certain sport, that's the NCAA in college baseball. But anyway, I know we all care about it around here. Uh, and again, Gamecocks and Tar Heels tonight at 7. I'll be back later this week on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Please keep rating this podcast five stars, writing a review if you want on Apple Pods. Uh, hit the subscribe button because that's uh, a way to get – it's free. There's no money you got to pay. Um, and uh, – you know, it, it can uh, allow you to get a notification every time there's a new episode and, and all that good stuff. If you're an iPhone user, if not, Spotify is a good place for it, too. Uh, and also, uh, we are on Audible now as well for free. So Audible is if you like audio books and stuff like that, you got an Audible app. You can listen to me and JC and Morgan and everything else we have on 24-7 Sports on Audible. All right, JC Sherbert signing off. Hope everyone has a wonderful Tuesday. We'll holla at you soon.